So my son texted me last night after the MSU game. And he said, you know your church attendance will be down by 30% tomorrow, right? I said, no, the true Christians will be there. So way to go, you guys. <laughs> and if you're feeling a little bit of the pain, that today's what uh, I hope will pick you up and encourage you. Um, greater things to live for than football games, right? Okay. Um, a couple things to pull to your attention. Michael mentioned one of them at the beginning of the service, and, and that is uh, the luncheon. If you came in late, you want to know for uh, Aaron and Cassie Gortmaker. Are you here in the auditorium someplace? I'm gonna, uh, stand up, you guys, would you? So everybody turn around and make them feel really uncomfortable. There's Aaron. There's Cassie. Okay. Look at them. All right. Glad to see you guys home. They're missionaries to Costa Rica. If you give to the general fund here at New Hope, you're giving to missions, and missions goes to people like Aaron and Cassie, and they're gonna give a little bit of an update along with a luncheon, um, free food if you're interested in staying around after this service, and it's in the quad area, which is like a fellowship area for us. So that's, put that on your, on your notes. And then the other thing is related to uh, children's ministry here. Um, you may not be aware, but the church is growing. If you're new to New Hope, this is probably maybe one of your first experience or maybe your very first time here. But um, starting in August, August 11th, our first day, day one, we were 950 people that weekend. And successively, since those six weeks, God seems to be just growing and adding new people to our number, and the church continues to increase, and that means there's a need in children's ministry. Um, Debbie has let us know that um, there's specifically some holes in the areas where she would like to have more people available, not that the children aren't being cared for right now. Your kids are well cared for, but she could use help in security um, and in registering children and in watching over the program as well as individuals who are teachers. So if you're interested, maybe you feel God calling you, maybe you just want to be an assistant in some fashion. Um, don't ignore that. God might be really calling you to serve in that way. So spend some time, maybe email somebody in children's ministry or catch them after the service and let them know, hey, I'm available. I, I would love to plug in and be used in that way. And they'd be thrilled to talk with you. I'm going to ask you to go to John chapter 19 and John chapter 20 in your Bible this morning. We'll pray together in just a moment. Um, we've been walking through this series. It's very short, and it's setting us up for a parable series we're about to take on. The weekend after the grand opening, which is in two weeks, we're going to be starting what appears to be about a 40-week series on the parables. We'll see. Could be longer, possibly. <laughs> Guarantee you it won't be less. Um, that particular series is going to take us a while. We're going to really dig into the teachings of Jesus and the parables, but we've been taking a few weeks leading up to it to discover who is this one, especially in light of the parables, who's this one that's doing these teachings and telling these stories. So on week one, we started three weeks ago by talking specifically about where did he come from? What was Jesus' origination? And we discovered he always has been. And then week two, last week when we were together, we talked about what did he accomplish? That God the Son became Jesus the man, what's the result of that? And we talked last week about the covenant that he made, the promise, and he did that in his own blood. And we celebrated with communion last week. And then this week we come into this third part, asking ourselves this question. How does this reality then make a difference in my everyday life? Like how many of us walk in the doors of a church, even if we haven't been there for a while, feeling like maybe our relationship with God is kind of mundane? 
Maybe even coming in and hearing worship music makes you step back and say, it's great that everybody else is singing, but I'm not really sure I'm there. And maybe by the fourth song, you're really getting into it, but you wonder, why am I feeling a little bit mundane about all of this? My desire for you this week, and in truth, since April, as I knew this was coming and been preparing for this, is that you would indeed have an absence of anything mundane in your life after today, in your relationship to your relationship with Jesus. What kind of a difference does it make in your everyday life? Ask yourself that question as we move forward in this, because to answer that question, forgive the pun, but we have to put some flesh on this issue of God the Son becoming Jesus the man. We have to understand what was it like for individuals to encounter him, and you're going to see this morning in John 19 and John 20, two specific individuals who had completely opposite responses to who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now, and here's how I'm going to ask you to pray. Even if you're a believer in Jesus and you've walked with him for more than 20 years, ask that he would give you new spiritual insight this morning, that he would give you fresh eyes, and that you would feel the wind of God in your sails. Would you pray with me that way? Father, we come before you and we lift up your word, and we know that it's alive, we know that it's active, we know that it's sharp, we know that it does things, because you pierce the heart with it. But if we're going to be honest, Father, there's times when we just feel bored or maybe even absent and certainly a sense of mundaneness. And we need to be refreshed. So, Father, I pray this morning for both believers and those who are not that there yet, that are maybe not yet believing, that you would give spiritual eyes, awaken us to the reality of what you have declared to be true in your word. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name. Amen. All that we've examined so far has been very theological. Theology is the study of God. Everything we've been studying in the first couple of weeks has been very theological. It's been very factual. It's the study of God, how God the Son put on flesh and became Jesus the man. But I'm here to ask you this morning, has the Jesus you've been learning about become real to you yet? Have you really encountered this one? It's very important to understand Jesus theologically. It's very important to study the brilliance of God. But at some point, you have to set aside the notes of archaeology, you have to set aside the notes of theology, and you have to actually let him be real to you. And I think you're going to see that contrast this morning. If you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 19, and we'll be just two verses in there, and then we'll move into John chapter 20 very quickly. But here's what's going on. The end of the book of John reads very factual, especially in John 19. It's almost like a novel wrapped together with present-day news story wrapped together with an obituary. And here's what I mean by that. Look at John 19:16. You'll see it on the screen as well. So he, meaning Pilate, handed him, Jesus, over to be crucified. Or John 19:42. it says this, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So here's the facts. Jewish male, 33 years old, from Nazareth, crucified by Rome. Memorial services to be held Sunday morning at the Jerusalem Cemetery. Very factual. But then, between verses 42 and verse 1 of chapter 20, 
between John 19 and John 20, something in a singular moment changes it all. When everything appears to have been destroyed, when everything seems to have failed, events unfold which change all of world history and I would argue all of eternality. Everything changes because of this moment. In chapter 20, we won't go to verse 1, but here's what's happening. It's the first day of the week. It's the day after Shabbat. Saturday is Shabbat. They've experienced Passover that weekend. Everybody's been at rest for a day. But then day one occurs, and the women are found together, and they're walking arm in arm, side by side, very quietly but briskly, hushed tones. And apparently Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, many people know her by, is at the front. She's the first one to see what no one else has noticed yet. This massive rock has been rolled away from the tomb. So in that breath, she turns and runs back to the house where Peter and John are staying. And she knows that they're inside there and she runs up to the door. Stop eating. They've taken Jesus' body. She doesn't know what else to do. She just bursts in and lets them know he's gone. Go with me up on the screen and you'll see what I'm describing. Verse 2. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now Mary's jumping to a huge conclusion. It's the wrong conclusion. Now she's basing it on what she saw and she's logically reasoning the right way. You would reason the same way. Logically, a dead person can't walk away, so somebody had to take him. She's using the right logic, but she's jumping to the wrong conclusion, and she fears the worst. Jesus' enemies have moved his body because logically, a dead person can't walk away. Peter and John, as they hear this, in an eye blink, literally bolt out the door and begin a foot race heading off towards the tomb. Go with me to verse 5. And stooping, or so Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now remember, John writes this when he's in his 90s. He's an old man looking back as being a young man. And he remembers what it's like to run. I'm thinking as a 90-year-old, a smile came to his face, especially when he remembers that he beat Peter. Because he tells you that multiple times as you read the story. They're running because it's such shocking news. They literally bolt because they've got to see this firsthand. They've got to see what's going on here. What's going on? Well, there's enormous emotion spilling over because the news is incomprehensible. Can you imagine if you've been to a funeral and then you went to the cemetery and only two days later somebody came to your house and said, I was just at the cemetery and the gravesite is opened up and the coffin is empty. What's going on here? So they've done the foot race and we come to verse 5 and it says, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. That's talking about Peter and John both. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. They both saw the exact same thing. This is how I think it's unfolding. 
Peter apparently has no hesitation. He rushes in because John's standing outside the tomb. Why John doesn't go in, we don't know for sure, but I think it's partly fear. Fear, perhaps, of contamination and defilation being next to a dead body because Jews have a big deal with that. According to the law, they're not supposed to come near a dead body. They've just completed Passover, which means they've got a brand new beginning, and I've got to start a cleansing process? If I go in there, I come in contact with the dead body. Apparently, Peter has no such inhibitions. He just rushes in. And the astonishment is there's no body. There's just these linen wrappings. Now, it might seem like these linen wrappings are a minor detail, and perhaps you've read right past them before and not really spent any time with them. But put yourself in that mode again of thinking you're going to a funeral. And imagine arriving at the funeral, you walk into the church building, and maybe the family has decided to have an open coffin. And you walk into the church building, and you come down the center aisle, and you see what you think is going to be the body in the coffin. But you look inside the coffin, and all you see are empty clothes. Like, that would be creepy, right? Just to see clothing inside a coffin? You begin to get the mindset of what's happening here. These guys are winded. They just had this race. They rush inside, and all they see is the clothing. This is a big deal. See, grave robbers would not bother to unwrap the body to take the body away and carry it away naked, but that's the rumor that's going around town that the grave has been robbed. They're they're presenting this as a lie, but that's what they're telling people. And they're saying the disciples did it. Well, if the disciples did it, They would never defile Jesus' body by unwrapping it, making it naked, and then carrying it away. Just on those two points alone, you'd have to say the presence of these wrappings really validates this story on several levels, but here is a factual thing you might need to know. In John 19, you find that there's an individual who comes to the cross when Jesus is taken off the cross And he comes with ointments and spices to prepare Jesus' body for the burial. He's the one, his name is Nicodemus, and he actually wraps Jesus' body. And in the ancient custom, every fold of every layer would get a new wrap of the ointment and the spices as they wrap the body. But Passover was quickly approaching, so he had to hurry. So they finish wrapping the body, and it's like a cocoon at this point. If you're you're thinking like an Egyptian cadaver, you're thinking the right way. This is like a mummy. And so the body's completely wrapped, and they lay it in the tomb. But when the spices are put inside the folds of the linen wrappings, and the body begins to decay, sorry if this gets gross for just a moment, but it's a reality of science. When the human body begins to decay, these spices were designed to interact with the human body fluids. And what it does is it creates a hard casing of a shell. So what we're looking at is the astonishment, just not that there's no body here, but laying in this tomb is this empty cocoon of linen that's retaining its shape, and it's hollow, and there's only one way these wrappings can be in this condition. And you begin to sense the hugely tangled emotion that these individuals are feeling, fear, 
anxiety, apprehension, expectation. And then this detail that comes out in the next verse, verse 7, and the face cloth which had been on his head is not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. See, this is eyewitness details. These are not the sort of things you would dream up on your own. You have an eyewitness standing there looking at this and then as a 90-year-old man writing about what he saw and what he experienced. And he says it's rolled up in a place by itself. What you need to understand about the death process is that when they began wrapping the body, they began at the collarbone, wrapping all the way around the shoulders, down the chest. The arms were laid right at the side. And they would do that all the way down to the feet. But the neck and the head was reserved to be wrapped completely separate. So we have the spices, we have the linens, we have the interaction of the chemicals bonding all these things together. And now we're told the headpiece is rolled up in a place by itself. The word that's in your notes this morning in the Greek language is the word entelisso. And it means it's retaining its original intricacies. It's all wrapped up together. In the Greek language, it means it retains its original form. This means that the cloth is retaining the shape of Jesus' head. So you've got the form of the body laying on the slab of the stone and the form of the head sitting off to the side here, like a decapitated mummy. Ooh. Um, do you think of God as having a sense of humor? Psalms chapter 2 says that God laughs out loud. Our generation thinks that we created LOL. God, God laughs out loud, and I think there's a moment. I'll check with him one day when I get to eternity. He can correct me on this. I think there's a moment when God sets this aside and says, wait till they see this. You've got linen wrappings, the hollow shell, and then the wrappings of the head retaining the shape. Who put it aside? God. Now let's just step back for a moment. There is nothing about an empty tomb to compel belief in a resurrection. You've seen it. You've driven by cemeteries. You've seen little piles of dirt before the funeral takes place. You've seen an empty gravesite. There's nothing about that to cause you to think that person resurrected. There's nothing about an empty tomb to compel belief. So John has personally hit a moment here. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've hit this moment. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you will face this moment, maybe even this morning. It's called a crisis of belief. He's hit this crisis of belief, and the crisis of belief says, what do I do with this information? John's crisis of belief is in this moment. Do I believe based on what I know? Is this legitimate? I'm personally convinced that a flood of Jesus' words are racing through John's mind. Words like this, John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Or John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. So John takes a step toward belief, I believe because of what God said. Watch verse 8, part A. So the other disciple who had first come, that's John, to the tomb also entered. So he understands there's only one possible explanation from this. This same Jesus who has been buried is now risen. How do I know that? Part B of verse 8. And he saw and he believed. Saw what? 
Remember, he's writing in the third person. This is 90-year-old John writing about what he experienced, and he's talking about his own conclusion. Based on his eyewitness experience, this is what I saw, and this is what I arrived at, and this is a physical seeing, and this is why I asked you to begin today by praying for spiritual eyes. This is a spiritual seeing. He's not just physically seeing the empty cocoon of the linen wrappings. He's putting together the pieces of what Jesus has declared. See, John is more like you than you think. You have human eyes, but you also have spiritual eyes. And John has linked the two together in the midst of this crisis of belief. He looks at the empty tomb. He sees the trophies of Jesus' victory, and they're coiled up on this rock slab. He sees the faith cloth put aside, and it's a spoil of the war that Jesus has just won. Did you know that the overwhelming majority of New Testament believers came to faith in Jesus Christ not because they saw Jesus, but because of what they were told by other people? It's a remarkable detail, but it's a reality. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ because of what they were told about these facts. But contrast that knowledge with the reality that there are others who are told the exact same things, the same information that Jesus is alive and they refuse to believe. And that's why we have two individuals that we're contrasting this morning, because they've been confronted with the same information. The words that they hear seem like nonsense. Well, that's a reflection of the first century. Look with me up on the screen at this, Luke 24, 11. These words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. That's talking about the disciples. Did you know that? We're talking about the 11 who survived. Judas kills himself. He's one of the 12, but now there's 11, and they're not predisposed to believing. There are others who are not believing because darkness has a grip on them, and I mean both physical and spiritual darkness. The doors are shut. We're told in the Greek language they've not only shut the doors, they've locked the doors, and they are in hiding, and they expect that Jesus' adversaries are going to burst through the door at any moment. Look with me at this at John 20, verse 19. When the doors were shut, and that means shut and locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. These people are locked away for fear. They're the friends of Jesus, his best friends, but they expect that they could be executed, maybe you've never thought of this before, for treason. See, the official Roman story is that they've stolen the body, therefore they've broken the seal of Pilate, therefore they've taken what Rome said is off limits, and therefore they could be executed for treason, and they know that, that's the word on the street. They know that that's what's being perpetrated out there, and so they're in hiding they're in fear of arrest. They're more vulnerable in this moment than I think in any previous occasion. So verse 19 is really a reality check. The doors are shut and locked, but just as Jesus' body has passed through the grave clothes, it passes right through the walls. And he simply materializes in their presence and says, shalom, 
peace be to you. And they're terrified. They think they're seeing a ghost. John gives us this impression that the entrance is absolutely extraordinary. Go with me to this next part, Luke 24, 37. They were startled and terrified, thinking they saw a spirit. Or this one in verse 41. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in front of them. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is eating in front of them to convince them that, hey, it's, it's real. You're having a real encounter with Jesus. Jesus wants to be real to them. Just ask yourself this kind of a question when you think of your bodily form in heaven or your friends and family members who are already there. What kind of body will you have that can pass through solid walls yet can also eat food? How remarkable is that? The writers can't explain it because it's a miracle. We can't explain it. The word miracle is too freely used in the English language today. I saw when someone was catching a pass yesterday during a football game, one of the announcers said, that was a miracle. No, it's not. If you can explain it, it's not a miracle. Miracles are things you can't explain. This is a miracle. How can this be? Now, the individual we want to examine is not present for this, and I think many of you have called him Doubting Thomas over the years. I'm gonna show you why that title is wrong. It's not Doubting Thomas. That's a name that was attached to him through church history. Let's see what it says about him in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. What's going on with him? Well, for sure he's probably not in the mood there's this social gathering, obviously, in the upper room. They've heard the story about Jesus' resurrection. They gather, but Thomas is not there. Why? I expect that Thomas, as much as anyone else, is crushed. He's downhearted. And there's probably a little greater degree of dark cloud around him. Why would I say that? Because if you only back up two weeks in time, Jesus told all of his followers that he's going to Jerusalem. And all of them pleaded with him and begged him, please don't go, they're waiting to kill you. But what about Thomas? Thomas was the one who said, if he's going, let's go with him and die also. Well, did he? No, he ran, just like the other disciples. When push came to shove, they bailed. Thomas has a bit of a darkness around him for some degree for whatever reason we don't know. But when he's informed of his friend's experience, he's unmoved completely because he wants to demand concrete proof for the person that he knew that Jesus whom he walked with every single day has been murdered and in a very specific fashion. So because of that very specific fashion, Thomas decides that he's going to set up some measuring rods, and it's going to include some very specific details. He wants pragmatic evidence, and perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe your walk with God has become so mundane that you need to be inspired again. Maybe you're where Thomas is at. He wants some really solid proof. Maybe you've got somebody like that in your life. And you can identify with Thomas. So he says, here's my criteria. And my criteria better match it for every jot and tittle that I specify or I will not believe. Jesus actually spoke to that mindset. 
If that's you this morning, if you've got a friend like that, so that's a very, very difficult person to deal with. Luke 16, 31 says this, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There's some individuals who won't be convinced even if they see a resurrection. I think that's where Thomas's heart is in some fashion because of what you're about to see. Go with me to verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In the Greek language, the verb that's used there says the others kept saying to him, meaning over and over and over, Thomas, it's amazing, you can't believe it. You're right, I can't, I don't but they kept saying it to him over and over and over again. But Thomas is so confident that Jesus' resurrection is ridiculous, that it's beyond the realm of possibility that he develops ridiculous proofs. In other words, don't expect me to be part of that. I would suggest to you that his doubt is not greater than our current culture, and it's not less than. He's right where culture's at. First century's no different than the 21st century. He's hit this crisis of belief, and he's in this in-between state, and God's gonna allow him some time to just simmer. So he gives him eight days, and he pushes him to the back burner and lets it just cook for a little while. But I want you to hear what his demands are. His demands are non-negotiable, and he wants to go one step further than what the others experience. So he says, unless I shove, and it's the word balo, unless I shove my finger into his wrist, unless I shove my fist into his rib cage and touch his chest, I will not believe That's a pretty high standard. It's a double negative in the Greek language. He says, I absolutely will not believe. Now, when a person says, I will not believe unless, what they're admitting to is that they already believe, but what they believe in is the standard of the validity of their own test. If it meets my criteria, if it meets my guidelines, had a young lady approach me three years ago and say, I would believe in Jesus, but I don't. And I said, well, on what condition would you believe? I already knew I had her in that moment. But I said, what's the condition? She said, I would believe if Jesus would show up on planet Earth and would stand over I-96 with a sign and say, here I am. I said, so what you're telling me is that you would believe if Jesus came to Earth and announced himself, Right? She said, yes. I said, well, you're in luck, because he did. She said, what, where? So I opened up the Bible and I showed her. She said, yeah, but it didn't happen in my lifetime. Now, you know where that argument goes, because logically you could say to someone, well, I don't believe the founding fathers even wrote the Constitution because it didn't happen in my lifetime. Just because it didn't happen in your lifetime doesn't mean that it didn't happen So when a person says, I will not believe unless it meets my validity, unless it meets my standard, they are already saying they do believe. They're more like Thomas than they realize. See, if a person has a faith in their own approach, why not have faith in what God has already revealed? 
The requirement for physical evidence is a much deeper issue than the physical evidence. It's an issue of the heart. That's why it requires spiritual eyes. That's where this story is going. Thomas is coming off the back burner. Watch this in verse 26, part A. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Now stop right there. Picture Thomas. He's already made it clear, I will not believe. I'm not a believer. I'm not interested. So why is he showing up here? Why even come? Is it just because it's a social gathering? Is it just because it's a church service where they they give out cookies? Is he just expecting to have a good time and hear some music? He's clearly not expecting a God encounter, and into that setting, Jesus appears. Finish the verse out, part B. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Shalom, peace be with you. That's code for, hello, Thomas. How would you feel in that moment if it's directed at you? And I know it's directed at him because of the very next verse, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it, and this is why I said the word balo, put it into my chest. If you need to do that, Thomas, you can go in and touch my rib cage. Touch it, Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hand. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. I want you to take this as a huge encouragement if you came in the door this morning as a non-believer. Take this as a huge encouragement because Jesus has a personal interest in you. Thomas is the non-believer of non-believers. He's had all the evidence, but he refuses to believe the evidence. And so Jesus has taken a personal interest in him. He has a personal interest in non-believers. And he's saying, you need evidence? I'll meet you right at the point of your need. And we'll talk about whether or not it's an issue of your heart. Did you ever notice when you read this story that Jesus had heard Thomas eight days before, even though he wasn't in the upper room? He already knew what Thomas had said. Nobody has told him. He just shows up again and says, if you need to touch my side, go ahead, Thomas. Who told Jesus that? Well, he hears you. When you think he's not hearing you, you think you're not being understood, know that God's listening. So he says in verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And notice this, Jesus is not rebuking the doubt. He's rebuking the unbelief. And here's why I tell you that Thomas has the wrong title. It's not Doubting Thomas because of the term that Jesus uses. It's the next Greek word in your notes, and it's the word apistos. Pistos is belief. You put the A in front of it, apistos. It's like taking the word theist and putting an A in front of it, atheist, atheist. Or apistos. This is you, Thomas. You're a non believer. You're faithless. See, unbelief is a moral issue. He simply will not believe. How do I know that? Well, Thomas was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He saw the miracle of a resurrection, but he doesn't believe in Jesus' case. Why is he questioning a resurrection? It's not that there's not enough evidence. The evidence is there. 
And I told you earlier, in the Greek negative, he's actually saying, I absolutely will not believe. That's a really tough person. So God's saying, you want evidence, here it is. But that's not what he needs, and Jesus knows it. In this moment, he's hit the crisis of belief also. The same place that John was at outside the tomb. The same place that you've been at some point in your life if you're a believer in Jesus. We know that because of his response in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So he's not merely professing that Jesus has risen. He's professing that he's God. He's reaffirming what the resurrection proves. That this is God in the flesh, that Jesus is Lord, that God the Son became Jesus the man. And if you read the story a hundred times, you will see that there's no evidence whatsoever that he ever took Jesus up on the offer and reached his hand out and touched the side. He didn't need to. He hit the crisis of belief and he realized who this one is. So this is where it really hits the road for you. Verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed are you, John, because you stood outside the tomb and you didn't see me, but you believed. Blessed are you, New Hope, living in 2019, because you have not seen me. The overwhelming majority of believers in Jesus since the resurrection have not seen him. So Jesus is looking forward in time. He's projecting a time when there will not be physical evidence, when you will not be able to go to an open tomb, when you will not be able to see linen wrappings, when the first century followers of Jesus wouldn't even be on planet earth anymore. When you live in 2019 and you read God's words, and Jesus says, you are blessed. And I want you to understand this morning, this is not just a condition of happiness. This is your last Greek word, and it helps you understand the way Jesus sees you this morning. Look with me on the screen at this word, Markyrios. Supremely fortunate, well-off, we get the facts out of that. Happy, happier, sounds like blessed to me, but here's what it really is in the Greek language. It's this. Congratulations! That's how God's saying this. Congratulations. You believed without having seen. That's why you find God being able to stand at the gates of heaven and say to you, come on in, well done, good and faithful servant. You who have believed without having even seen, you are blessed. Congratulations to you. Why? Because of this, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Put the pieces together, church. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And everybody said, amen, right? The salvation of your souls. Like you should be walking out this door this morning with a skip in your step walking a little bit taller, New Hope. The privilege of knowing in advance that you have received the salvation of your souls, you're destined for eternity. In other words, your sins have been forgiven and Jesus has taken you in if you're a believer. 
So the salvation of your souls, the forgiveness of your sins, Thomas is so fortunate to see, but that's not what saved him. He sees, but that's not what saved him. He believes, and that's why he says, you're my Lord and my God, I believe in you. When you hit the crisis of belief, we teach this at New Hope, what you believe about God determines what you do next. Some people need to drink that in twice, hear it again. When you hit the crisis of belief, what you believe about God determines what you do next. What are you going to do with this? I'm here this morning to ask you, have you believed in Jesus as your Lord and your God? Have you surrendered your life to him? It's the most important decision you're ever going to make. And you need to know this, if you're expecting God to do something more in order to save you before you can be saved, he's already done it all. Amen, church? He's done it all. He's done everything that needs to be done. It's up to you just to receive it. You have to believe. So I'm asking, do you need to do business with God today? I've been praying for you in advance if that's the case. You might be a person who's been a believer a long time since your childhood. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this is available to you today. Maybe you need to do business with God in this moment. Did you need to be reminded that you follow a risen Savior? Or have you not stopped to think about that since Easter? Or for you who might not yet believe, I want you to know that what he's offering is absolutely free of charge, but it's optional. You do not have to receive it, and I promise you, no one's going to tackle you in the parking lot this morning. Jesus didn't tackle anybody. He just offered the truth. So you have the responsibility, what am I going to do with this? What you believe about God determines what you do next. I'll promise you this. If you decide today to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, God will accept Jesus' death on your behalf. And he will separate your sins as far from you as the east is from the west, and he will remember them no more. Whatever you sin committed last night or whatever you did a week ago or 10 years ago, Jesus died for that. And maybe you're thinking your sin is too great. He died for that. You cannot out the grace of God toward you. God's grace is greater. That's why it's called amazing. That's why they write songs about it. It's amazing grace, but it's your decision. So I'm gonna invite all of us to pray right now to close this service, but I specifically will, in the midst of the prayer, talk to those who might be new to this. Let's pray together first, and I wanna pray for my friends who are believers in Christ first. Lord God, we come to this moment when there's a chance that in this auditorium there's individuals who just needed to be refreshed this morning. And there's definitely a need for wind in the sails because there's a, there's a feeling that the waves are swamping. God, I don't know what business that individual needs to do with you, but you do. And if there's a need to confess sin, deal with that person, Father. Father. That they, that they would step into this place where they recognize you've already forgiven the sin, but we need to acknowledge it that, it, that it's a barrier between us and you. Father, don't let us leave unchanged today, though. But I pray specifically, Lord God, for the individuals right now who might not yet know you as their Savior. Come to that one, Lord God. 
be especially close. And if that's you right now, I just want you to do this. If you want to believe, you want to be like Thomas and declare him as your Lord and your God, just offer this back to him and say to him, you can do it in the quietness of your breath. Jesus, I believe. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness of my sin. Just tell him that. I promise you he will not be surprised. Tell him that you have sin and you need it taken away. Confess Jesus as your Lord and invite him to live with you. Tell him you want him to come into your life. This is language God knows. If you've received Jesus in this service, I'm gonna encourage you to come and talk to me after the service or come and talk to a few other individuals I'll point out in just a minute, but let's continue to pray. Father, I thank you for what's taken place here. Your word has become alive and it has become active and it has become piercing. And you penetrate in ways that we can't understand, but only you can do it. So Father, where you've done that in the previous service, where you did that last weekend, for individuals who name the name of Jesus as their savior now, who identify their need, God, grow them. Grow them in their walk with you. For the brothers and sisters in Christ who already know Jesus, Father, I pray that you send them out with great encouragement, that you yourself have pronounced us blessed because we have seen without and we have, we have not even been able to see and we have believed. Thank you for spiritual eyes. Send us out now with your blessing. We ask for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. If you prayed to receive Christ this morning, I just want you to hear this, this is worth stating. Up here at the front of the stage, will be Jeff Schneider and Julie Schneider or myself or Michael Glenn. And if you'd like to have somebody to pray with, we can go over to the prayer room. We'd be happy to talk with you and be honored to talk to you further. If in the meantime you can't do that, there's free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. They're on a table out in the atrium. Be sure and grab one of those Bibles on your way out. They're blue and they're there for you and it says right on top of it, free Bibles. Don't hesitate to take one. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.